go. We can do it. And sorry, and just a quick reminder. No cursing. Well, you could curse. I don't mind. Curse is a sign of an intellectual, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Conry, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In this episode, we speak with Dave Silberman, the High Bailiff of Addison County, cannabis attorney, and co-founder of Flora Cannabis in Middlebury, Vermont's first licensed adult-use cannabis retailer. Dave is also a drug policy reform advocate. He has been intimately involved in Vermont's legalization efforts since 2015. Stay tuned to learn about the cannabis legislation currently winding its way through the Statehouse and why the proposed changes are important for Vermont's emerging cannabis marketplace. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before we share our conversation with Dave, a quick note on cannabis banking here in Vermont. On March 1st, Brattleboro Savings and Loan, or BSNL, announced it is discontinuing cannabis banking services. They were one of the first financial institutions in the state to offer banking services to the industry. An article in Vermont Digger stated that the regulatory requirements of serving businesses that the federal government still considers illegal have proven too costly at BSNL's strategic scale. BSNL's exit leaves just three banks within Vermont that continue to service the sector, Vermont Federal Credit Union, New England Federal Credit Union, and Vermont State Employees Credit Union. The last two underwent an approved merger back in November of 2022. Interestingly, these are federally chartered banks as indicated in their names. Vermont needs more than two credit unions to support this new industry. Silicon Valley Bank's failure last week is a clear example of why Vermont needs a diversity of financial institutions to serve the cannabis industry. With few banking options and the considerable cost of maintaining an account, many cannabis businesses forego a banking relationship altogether and resort to cash-only operations. In a 2020 article, Forbes estimated this to be about 70% of cannabis businesses nationwide. This creates cash management costs internally and poses safety risks for owners, employees, and customers due to the amounts of cash stored on hand. The cannabis industry needs regulatory requirements and enhanced auditing practices to ensure that the money moving in and out of cannabis accounts are connected to licensed sales and operations, not illicit ones. Otherwise, banks are concerned about being charged with money laundering under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Regulations also give comfort to investors, small and large alike, and the cannabis industry needs more capital. Unfortunately, these banking challenges can only be addressed through federal action, whether it be legalization, passage of the Safe Banking Act, or the rescheduling of cannabis in the Controlled Substances Act. Let's turn now to our conversation with Dave Silberman about issues that can be addressed at the state level and the cannabis bills currently being considered by our state legislature. All right, Dave Silverman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Good. We've been at this kind of a long time together. Yeah. Um, you're a prominent voice in the space in terms of cannabis legalization at the state house, 
in CCP meetings now, <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> controversial depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, but I always appreciate that you're kind of pushing the conversation forward, even yeah. though sometimes, you know, I don't think we agree on everything, but that's good. We can't, we can't always agree on everything. And, you know, I think for me, I, I've never been shy about uh, approaching controversy. And, and when you're dealing with cannabis, it's all controversial. So yeah. uh, might as well dive in head first. Definitely. Cool. Well, let's talk about how you got in that position. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you made your way to Vermont and how you made your way into these conversations. Yeah. So I came to Vermont in 2013. My wife started a position as a faculty member at Middlebury College. So we moved to Middlebury. Go Panthers. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess. Uh, <laughs> not not that big a college sports fan, but I am a big fan uh, now that I'm now that I own Flora Cannabis. I'm a big fan of college sports because they do bring a lot of customers into the store. So go Panthers and visiting teams. Um, <laughs> so I came to Middlebury in 2013, and I've been an attorney since 2020, telecommuting since 2009. And so it was very easy for me to plug in to my job from Middlebury. I started getting quite bored with it after a while. And, you know, I had a very strong interest in criminal justice drug policy and uh, thought that there might be an opportunity to get involved in that way. And so in, in 2015, when I saw that there were some actual conversations happening in the state house around cannabis, I went and reached out to my state legislator at the time, uh, Amy Sheldon, who's now the chair of natural resources in the house. And we had coffee and she kind of laid out for me who's who, what's what, who's for, who's against, who to talk to. And that was super helpful. And she gave me one great piece of advice, which I think is a, a great piece of advice for anybody who wants to be involved in politics in Vermont, which is show up. Yeah. Uh, and so I showed up. I called some folks. I remember talking with Dave Zuckerman, who was a state senator still at the time. Yeah. Uh, he was on his farm. I just called him and we talked while he was feeding the chickens. And uh, I went to a hearing. I went to a hearing of the Senate Government Operations Committee. It was a, you know, a big back and forth public hearing where they were seeking input from people as to what cannabis legalization should look like. And, you know, got positive feedback and that positive feedback built upon itself. And I just kept showing up and showing up and showing up. And eventually people were used to seeing me. And that's, I think, how it works in Vermont. Yeah, that's. What, I mean, it actually is one of the great things about Vermont is that it being a small state, you have access to state government. You know, yeah. and if you do show up, you can affect change. But as you said, you've got to be persistent. And so you weren't acting. I mean, let's back up a minute. What kind of law do you practice? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's not well, criminal law. You no, know, you no. have an so, in uh, currently, I have a cannabis law-focused practice. I uh, left my job that I was telecommuting to in 2020, and I started my own practice, and now it's predominantly cannabis law. Before that, I'd spent 15 years as an in-house lawyer for a financial services company based in California. Gotcha. Um, and so I was doing a lot of financial industry kind of stuff. But it was a weird financial services company with a lot of retail product distribution, so I was doing a lot of distribution agreements and a lot of intellectual property agreements, right. branding deals. So I did this kind of nice, broad corporate practice, uh, which I think has served me well as I transition towards cannabis business law. But no, I did not, do not practice criminal law. But I, as a lawyer, you know, I could see how the criminal justice system was failing, even from outside of the criminal justice system per se, just what you see on the news, what you read. You see that the... the the criminal legal system in Vermont nationally is not living up to the promise of the Constitution. Your Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment rights are being trampled upon every day. And at the heart of it is the war on drugs. Yeah. So uh, the, the racism in policing is 
enabled by the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, it seemed like a really natural way to attack that system. And the easiest drug to deal with from a drug policy perspective is cannabis because it's popular. It's a much easier conversation. It's relatable for people to people. Yeah, it's it's an easier conversation (laughs) to have about cannabis than it is about heroin. Mm -hmm. So I think of cannabis as the gateway drug policy reform because now that I've got you hooked on legalizing cannabis. Can, can, can we talk about meth? <laughs> <laughs> right, which you are. We'll get to that. You are on the advisory or the steering committee, right, for Decriminalize Vermont. That's right. Um, so it's not just a cannabis focus. You're really all about decriminalized personal use to begin with. Yeah, I, I uh, personally don't believe that any consensual behavior between adults should ever be criminalized, whether that's sex work, whether that's personal consumption of any substance. Putting somebody into the criminal legal system is the wrong solution. If you think that there is a problem, if you think that there is a moral problem, if you think that there is a societal problem, jail is not the answer. Is not the answer. Yeah, here, here. All right. So you made yourself visible down at the state house. <laughs> you weren't a lobbyist, though. No. You were just an advocate. That was news to me when we were talking about that. And so when you're an advocate like that, how do you access the important conversations. I was thinking that lobbyists had more had more access, you know. I mean, I know a lot of the work goes on or the conversations go on in the hallways and in the cafeteria and things like that. And there's opportunities for members of the public to participate in public sessions. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how did you how much time were you spending down there? <laughs> uh, well, and who were you meeting with? N- who n- were the important players? N- now, now that I'm no longer employed by my former employer who I was playing hooky from about one day and one and a half days a week, I guess I can say I was there about one day a week at the state house, and I spent quite a lot of time on the phone with folks as well. Uh, look, absolutely, the professional lobbyists who are in Montpelier day in, day out have greater access than mm-hmm. any one advocate, any one citizen could possibly have. I think the difference between what a lobbyist does and what I do basically comes down to getting paid for it. You know, I am doing lobbying work. I just don't do it for money, for another person. I don't lobby on behalf of my law clients. I serve them as a lawyer, uh, as a legal representative, Mm -hmm. not as a political uh, representative, political advisor. Got it. And so, you know, I show up, I talk, I write, I help organize and you know, if you do it over and over, over a period of several years, you start to build credibility. People yeah. get used to seeing you there and they start asking you for your advice. And if you give them good advice, they'll come back to you. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Well, what were the top initiatives that you were fighting for, um, you know, leading up to legalization? Sure. So beginning in 2015, the things I was pushing for, I'd say like top three would be home grow first legalization. Mm-hmm. That was something that in 2017, I went to Maxine Grad, who was the chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, and talked with her about how do we move this forward? Because the we just had this big failed vote on S-241 that didn't have home grow in it at all. And that just seemed wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think is part of the reason why that bill ultimately failed. And so we um, worked together to come up with a, with a nice plan of having a bill that just legalized possession and home grow. And, you know, we thought maybe we can get three plants per person. We ended up with two, but it was pretty monumental. That was the first time that a state had legalized possession and home grow or any kind of legalization through a legislative process as opposed right. to through a referendum. So that was a big win. Yeah. The, the kind of other big priority for me was keeping Vermont's cannabis market open to people with prior criminal histories. You know, a lot of 
Like if you look at the, the Farm Bill of 2018 that legalized hemp, if you have a drug felony conviction in the past 10 years, you can't get a hemp license. So if you have been arrested and convicted of, of growing cannabis, you can't grow hemp, which is crazy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's insane. How is it possible that we have better laws around that with cannabis than hemp? Well, because that is a federal law. Oh, it's because, yeah. right. Because so, of, yeah. and, and that Farm Bill 2018 was written by Mitch McConnell uh, right. to benefit the, you know, big Kentucky ag interests, you know, not black people who've been abused by the criminal legal system. Right. Mitch McConnell couldn't give a smaller shit about those people. So I, I worked on making sure that happened, and I helped write the language that's in the current law that forbids the Cannabis Control Board from denying someone a business license based on their criminal history unless the board can demonstrate that that person is a present threat to public safety, which I think is kind of an appropriate standard. Yeah. Are, are you currently a murderer? Mm -hmm. uh, then maybe <laughs> no. you shouldn't have a license. Right, exactly. Uh, and then also expunging past cannabis mm -hmm. convictions. We had a, a great champion of that policy in uh, Senator Chris Pearson from right here in Burlington. Yep. And you really helped push that forward. And so we have automatic expungement coming at the end of this year. Oh, well, it's going to be automatic. People yeah. don't have to do anything? Or? That's right. Wow, that's, that's right. awesome. You can petition now if you have a, a cannabis misdemeanor conviction or even an arrest without a conviction of for two ounces or less. You can petition now for, for an expungement. But you don't have to. At the end of 2023, it's going to be done automatically by the courts. The courts hated this, by the way. They think it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. But, but it's you know. important work. Yeah. And then uh, kind of like the third big priority for me was making sure that our tax and regulate model was very welcoming to small businesses. And so I pushed very hard for what is now called the one license rule, which means that a person can only own or control one license of each type. So no chain stores, no chain grows. You can have one grow. You can vertically integrate. You can have a grow in manufacturing and a retailer, uh, but you can't horizontally integrate, meaning you can't monopolize a market, which I think is super important in a state like Vermont where the market is so small. One person, you know, one big company, well-financed, could come in here and open up 50 stores and own the entire market. Well, now they can't. Right. I don't know that any one big company would do that, though, because the market is so small here in Vermont. I mean, this is one of the places where you and I see a little bit differently. I mean, I, I agree that we want to have a program that supports small businesses. But I wanted to see all businesses being able to, to enter the market. And I never really saw out-of-state conglomerates really eyeing Vermont to come in here because it's small. The one thing that I, I mean, I'm hoping to see in the future that that is gradually lifted because I think that the state is going to see consolidation just like any state does. You know, you open the market and people give it their college try. Some people succeed and some people don't, you know, and, and you're hoping that that the majority do. But consolidation happens for a lot of reasons. And so it would be nice for businesses that exist who want to grow to be able to possibly buy a business that's going out of business. Or maybe that somebody is just wanting to exit. Maybe they were successful and they said, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, why shouldn't they be able to sell to a business that already existed? That's the sort of thing that that I would like to be possible in the state. So Yeah, no, I think there's a legitimate argument on the other side that we've... Um that we're too strict by having one license be the limit. I think as we start, that is the right number. Yeah. Um, that really gives everyone the ability to get into this market, 
and show how good they are at this. There's right. a lot of people out there. I don't know if you've noticed a lot of people out there who claim to be the best yes. at cannabis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, our law really gives them a chance to prove it. Yes, it does. I guess I'm just hoping, too, that, you know, we talked about this earlier in the week, you know, that Vermont has kind of set a low bar in terms of access of just the application process itself and even the costs uh, mm-hmm. of entering the market, which, again, in theory, that's a great thing. And I'm just worried that that maybe the, the bar being set so low that people are going to enter and they're going to lose their shirt, just like a lot of people did in the hemp space. Yeah. You know, we don't want to see hemp 2.0 in the cannabis space. I say this to my clients, uh, my prospective clients, when they come to me and ask me about starting up a new cannabis business, especially with an indoor grow, is I, I tell them, start slow and figure out how to run this business because it's a business first and foremost when you're in this regulated market. Yeah. You can't do it as a little side project. Right. It's a business. Yeah. And so that's an yeah. expensive business compared to others because of the regulation, because yeah. of the taxes. So yeah. I mean it's more expensive to run an indoor grow with a license than without a license. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, hopefully worthwhile for people. Now, it's not as expensive in Vermont as it is in I would say every other state, you can get a license in Vermont within two months of starting up your business. And you can do it in your home in most places. Uh, zoning laws might prevent you from doing it in yeah. every town in the, in the state. but That's unique to Vermont yeah. too, right? I mean, yeah. we're the only ones who have a home occupancy license. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's a little strange. Uh, yeah. You know, when you think about indoor grows attached to your house, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it can be a little scary, especially if you have kind of uh, home rigged your electrical system. Exactly. Uh, so people really should be careful and think, yeah. and think long and hard before jumping in. But it is possible. And, um, you know, I've helped dozens of uh, entrepreneurs get their licenses, including home-based licenses and mm-hmm. bigger licenses. You know, it's been fast. I've heard uh, stories of, you know, folks in Massachusetts who started their business, started paying rent, and got their license seven, nine months yeah. later. In Vermont, it's, yeah, not, it's that's quick. not the situation. Good. All right. So I just wanted, before we move on to, I wanted to get back to the piece about home grow and licensing home grow, because that happened in 2018. Yeah. And I think everybody was hopeful that tax and regulated market would happen at the same time, and it didn't because they couldn't get that passed. So only home grow and possession passed. That's right. And so, which is awesome. Everybody should be able to grow at home. I agree. At that time, though, it encouraged the illicit market to really bloom and blossom. Yeah. And so I'm wondering now that you're a licensed retailer, <laughs> how you're feeling about you know that because it's competition for you, you know. You know, um, we have a lot of home growers that come yeah. to our store and uh, buy flour, not just edibles, not just concentrates or, you know, whatever. They come in and buy flour. I think a lot of folks who are growing at home are hobbyists and they are really into cannabis and they like the fact they can come to my store and see what other talented growers are growing and try different things. And so I think. People are generally very excited, even folks who who have plenty because they grew, you know, two, four, six plants in their backyard, even though two is the limit. So they have pounds and they give it away to their friends. But, you know, most people who are growing out in their garden are not going to grow product of the quality that we sell at Flora. And that's not a brag about Flora. That's a brag about the cultivators we work with. These people are amazingly skilled. And I think home growers are, are happy to see that. Now, with respect to the illicit market, I hope that folks on the illicit market think about 
coming into the regulated market. Yes, it's a little more expensive, but it also takes away that risk of, of arrest, which does still exist. Mm -hmm. And it gives you an ability to be a part of your local business community as opposed to hiding in the shadows. Right. And I'll say I've, I've helped three, we'll call them legacy market uh, dealers. Yes. Uh, I've helped three of those people open up retail stores in Vermont. And now that you could say is really direct competition yes. to Flora. Um, <laughs> and two of them are actually quite close to us. But, you know, I think that that was very rewarding work for me because it really gives truth to that promise that we made of, of this is going to be a market for the legacy market to come into yeah. and be a part of. And I think that's happening. Yeah. Uh, it's not... There will certainly be legacy market people who you know, will hear this and say, yeah, this guy's crazy. I'm never doing that. Or, you know, I feel like I'm excluded. I would tell those folks, come and talk and right. let's figure out a way to get you in because I've done it now three times with folks and I'm sure I could do it again. Great. Cool. All right. So those were your three top initiatives leading up to the tax regulated market. And so we've got three bills now that are in the current legislative session that are looking to... Well, two, really. Two that are looking to, like, amend and improve uh, the program, and one of them is just a budget bill. And so tell us about what the top priorities are in those bills, what the most important things are. Now that you're an operator, too, and have seen the other side, sure. uh, what's moving through the legislature and, and uh, why it's important? Yeah, we have a... Um call it a miscellaneous amendments bill. It's in the House Government Operations Committee right now, and it looks to do a bunch of different things, some minor improvements to the medical market, some really minor changes to the advertising rules, nothing that will actually help anyone. It's just kind of like clarifications. But it does do a few things that I think are helpful. It aims to lift the potency cap on edibles. And what I mean is that currently under law, uh, you can only have 50 milligrams total THC in a package of edibles. This looks to bring it up to 100, and that's eminently sensible. So Vermont, we're keeping the 5 milligram serving size, just is, allowing it to be know, 100 total. Okay, th That's right. So 5 milligrams a serving, uh, at least Vermont isn't the only state. Mm -hmm. uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts also have 5 milligrams mm -hmm. per serving. 50 milligrams a package, Vermont stands alone. Every other state except Michigan has settled on 100. Michigan has 200. Um, <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been advocating for this. I advocated for this last year. It didn't get taken up, but now it is being taken up. And I think we have a, a good chance here of, of going from 50 to 100. And I think that'll help. You know, as I told the legislature last week when I was there testifying, I think about 10% of the cost of edibles in a store in Vermont today is attributable to packaging alone. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we can bring that down from 10 to 5, we're saving consumers a significant amount of money. And businesses. And businesses, yeah. 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 And that, of course, you know, gets passed on to, yeah. to the consumer. It's yeah. the, just as we pass on the cost, we're going to pass on the savings as well. Definitely. So that's a big thing that's happening there. They're looking to create a new kind of license called a propagation license. I think this is a great idea, not just because I proposed it last year. Um, <laughs> I just think it's a great idea. It would basically say that if you're a grower, you can get a second license as a propagator. And the difference between a grower and a propagator would be that the grower can bring the flowers, the plants into flowering, the propagator cannot. Uh, the propagator is like, uh, like, like a, a, nursery. A, a nursery license. But it wouldn't be selling to the public. It would be selling to other licensees. So that one, I think, stands a good chance of passing. And yeah, another and the big CCB part, is going to be supporting that yeah. because of what's recently happened and some of the discoveries that they have about clones coming in from other, out of state that are possibly contaminated. Yeah, so. I, I think it's important to have a regulated source of clones, especially when you recognize that 
some of these pesticides that are harmful to human health are systemic. That means they're in the clone. Even if you sprayed the mother, it'll still be there in the flower generations down the road. And, and that's crazy. Yeah, it's um, amazing how, how they just hang out. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, having a regulated source is, is important. And I was glad to see the CCB, you know, kind of sign up for that idea. So that's exciting. And it also means that if you're a, a licensed cultivator, you don't have to give up your limited square footage for vegetative canopy anymore. You can get that other license and you can increase, you know, your production that way, which is right. great. Yeah. And it probably won't be that expensive in terms of licensing because your return on the plants is not going to be as high as a yeah. finished product either. Yeah, so. the, the, the idea is to make this be accessible. Yeah, and and I think the board recognizes, I mean, you could talk to them, but I think they recognize that there's a different business model with propagation. Yeah, And then the other, I think, really important piece of this miscellaneous bill is that they clarify that the Department of Liquor and Lotto does not have any regulatory role in the cannabis market, which I thought and think as a lawyer is already pretty darn clear in law. But DLL seems to think otherwise. And they did a raid recently, a couple of months ago, a month ago, uh, they did a raid on a cannabis store where they sent an underage secret shopper in to try to gain access. They were not allowed in. The fake ID was caught. Uh, but then a, licensed, uh, a licensing agent came in, a uniformed licensing agent from DLL came in and said, you need a tobacco license to sell pipes as if it's tobacco paraphernalia that mm -hmm. we're selling. And I'm sorry, we're not selling tobacco paraphernalia. We're selling cannabis paraphernalia. And the Department of Liquor and Lotto does not have any right under law to regulate cannabis paraphernalia. But this bill will make that super clear in case it wasn't super clear enough already. Right. Well, wasn't it in the original bill that the DLL would have that responsibility and would help so where's the confusion there? I don't know. I mean, there was a lot of different ideas bandied around as to what regulatory body would have what responsibility. And ultimately, it was put into this new body called the Cannabis Control Board. And there was no responsibility allocated to DLL. But as sometimes happens, people, bureaucrats, like to expand their turfs. Right. And I think that's what's happening here. I just feel like it, this feels like a turf war between DLL and the CCB. And I think DLL is just plain wrong. Hmm. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Uh, if DLL comes to my store, I will tell them to leave and come back with a warrant. Right. And so... I'm assuming you don't have a license. I do not <laughs> have. I <laughs> do not have a tobacco license. I will never get a tobacco license. Uh, they can sue me. Right. Well, hopefully <laughs> the bill will pass and it won't come to that. That's right. Uh, and I think along with that, there's a tangential benefit to clarifying the DLL is out because we can also at the same time clarify that not only is cannabis paraphernalia not tobacco paraphernalia, it's also not a tobacco product. And there is a tobacco product tax. Most people think of it as the vape tax. It is a 92% tax at the wholesale level on any electronic device, get this, that can be used to vape any substance. And so somehow cannabis has gotten wrapped up into this, I think just by neglect, not by intention. And so I think we can clarify once and for all that not only should the vape tax not apply to vape cartridges, but it shouldn't apply to things like vape pens. Right. And so is that in one of the bills the that's going the, through? The Budget Adjustment Act, which is about to be signed, I hope, by Governor Scott, includes a provision that says that the 
vape tax will not apply to vape cartridges once they are filled with oil. Instead, it applies when the manufacturer purchases the empty cartridge from their supplier. So let's say you're buying an empty cartridge for a buck. Yeah. So you would pay a buck 92. And then when you fill it and you sell it to a retailer, you would not have to collect 92% tax again. So it. It, it really minimizes would, it. It will dramatically. It will drop. I, I predict that this will lead to a drop in the retail price of vape cartridges by a good ten to fifteen dollars a cartridge, uh, which is great. Yeah. And that's really important because we want to bring as many vape consumers into the regulated market as possible. Because I don't know if you remember, in 2019, 68 people died from yes. illicit market vapes that were diluted with vitamin E acetate. Those were all illicit market vapes. Mm -hmm. People were not dying from regulated market exactly. vapes. And so it's really important for consumer safety to bring people into the regulated market when you're talking about these substances that can be quite dangerous if they're diluted, if they're not made in the right way. 100% agree with you. <laughs> so hopefully we'll get that one across the line. And then speaking of like bringing more people into the market, is it S72 that is about getting rid of the potency on yeah. concentrates? So there's a separate bill. This one's a little more controversial, trying to get rid of the 60% cap on solid and liquid concentrates. So vapes are already carved out of that and have been. So uh, wax, shatter, mm -hmm. you know, rosin. Here's the funny thing. If you sell rosin in a jar for people to use as solid as a solid concentrate, let's call it, that is subject to a 60% cap. But if you put that same rosin into a vape cartridge, it is not subject to the 60% cap. Hmm. Now, what is the sense of that? There's no sense in that. <laughs> there is no sense in that. <laughs> that's um, one of the only solid concentrates, though, that work in a vape cart, right? But it right. is like the, the whatever, something that like points out that the rule makes no sense. Yeah, it, it makes no sense at all. And, and, you know, what it does is that it requires manufacturers to do one of two things. Either they make their product and then dilute it and then query what it is that they can dilute it with that is not injurious to health when heated and vaped or heated and smoked. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of anything that is safe to add to cannabis oil. Right. And the other thing that they can do is stop the refinement process earlier than they would like to. And you end up with a product that has just more waxes, more plant matter, uh, flavonoids, things that, again, maybe is not the safest thing in the world to light on fire and inhale into oh, your lungs. Oh, absolutely not. You don't want to be inhaling waxes into your lungs. And, and <laughs> so. so the irony of this is that the people pushing to retain these caps, and in fact, they're even pushing to put vape cartridges back into the cap, is the Vermont Medical Society. The no surprise there. <laughs> Listen, these are people who, these are lobbyists who represent doctors, mm -hmm. uh, but really who they seem to be representing is the interest of pharmaceutical companies, certainly are not representing the interests of public health. Because if you're interested in public health, that means you're also interested in the health of cannabis consumers. And if you're interested in the health of cannabis consumers, you want them to have pure, refined, undiluted, unadulterated products. Tested, regulated, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, they've been... I don't understand it because we have more and more doctors who are open now to patients consuming cannabis. 
And the Vermont Medical Society, as long as I've been working on this topic, has been one of the roadblocks to any expansion of the medical program and now improvements to the adult use program. Yeah, I, and I'm I wonder not if sure. it has anything to do with the fact that study after study shows that when you make safe and legal access to cannabis easier for people, that they use less opioids and benzodiazepines. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it's part of it. 100%. I don't know who's on the Vermont Medical Society either and if they're just older and more conservative in their thinking and or how they get on that board too. Yeah. But, uh, uh, it's definitely a conservative group. They are and they work very closely with Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which yeah. is this national prohibitionist group. And they really see um, potency uh, caps as the sort of last ditch effort at prohibition. Okay. You know, they, they see that they've lost the war. Uh, and now they're trying, uh, you know, to, to keep with the uh, analogy, you know, guerrilla tactics around the edges. Right, right. All right. And so that's the potency thing. So we're that's not quite potency. sure what's going to yeah, happen uh, there. I mean, we'll, I don't we'll know. See, we'll see next week because next week is a crossover deadline and we'll see whether the Senate Judiciary Committee is able to pass that out. I'm, I'm hopeful that they will. It makes eminent sense. And I really hope to see it happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I imagine things must be different at the State House. Uh, now for a few reasons. I mean, one, we just had kind of a real turnover of the people who are serving now. Like after COVID, I think we had like a 30% turnover of, yeah. the, of the people both in the House and the Senate. Um, and a majority of chairs, committee chairs, have, uh, have changed, changed as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a much different legislature this yeah. time around. And, and some of the folks who were most hardline against uh, liberalization of drug laws are gone and replaced with younger, more forward-thinking people. That's great. So, you know, I'm looking to see some improvements. I think there's a real opportunity also on the medical side to to make some improvements, um, but I will let other people speak to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to do a whole show on what's going <laughs> on on the medical side. <laughs> but the other thing that is different is that we have an active CCB who is trying to advocate for improvements to the program and and Jack in the medical, I mean, we were overseen by the Department of Public Safety. Yes, and, you were. And they, they weren't really activists. They weren't at the state house Cops, saying, hey. hard to believe. <laughs> you know, we need to do this. They actually, I'm, and I'm not speaking about the people who actually administrated the program because I feel like Lindsay and her team wanted to see the, the program grow. It was the people yeah. above her who, who didn't for a variety of reasons, you know, because I just don't think that they wanted to have to regulate more people and they weren't really in favor of it. Um, it was very clear that DPS, which is the same agency that, you know, handles cops, yeah. uh, the state police, it was very clear that they wanted to control cannabis, not help cannabis businesses succeed or help cannabis consumers find the relief that they're looking for. And it's uh, very different with the Cannabis Control Board. Yeah. With the CCB, we have partners who are looking to have a safe and accessible market for consumers, make sure everything is tested. They certainly want us to follow the regulations. But I think you see on a day-to-day -day basis that, A, they are super responsive. When you have questions, they answer them, both privately and publicly. You can usually get somebody on the phone pretty quickly when you have a, an issue. And when there are compliance infractions, their first instinct is to educate mm -hmm. and remediate not to punish. And that's very different than the approach you would see from a division, from a department like DPS or even a, a department like DLL, um, who are enforcers 
Uh, and they come in there and they're looking to shut you down. Right. And I'm, I'm thankful that the CCB has taken this educational approach because, you know, we have a lot of folks who are in a uh, running their own businesses for the first time or running legitimate businesses for the first time. And there's a learning curve and, you know, they need the help. And uh, so far, Kerry Jaguar and his team have been out there trying to help. Now, right. when they see intentional violation, uh, when they see people uh, delivering outside of the state. Yeah, I heard uh, about that. I think they're going to come down pretty hard. <laughs> yes. As they should. They because, should, yes. you know, creating bad headlines for the entire Vermont industry, uh, that's not cool. Right. Cool. All right. Well, did we miss anything? Any of the other priorities and what's in the legislature right now? There's a, a, there are a couple of other bills and, you know, we'll kind of see where they go. I think they're probably not going to make crossover, but you could see some of their ideas go into other bills that did. And so one is focused on, we'll call it broadly, equity and trying to beef up the social equity program, perhaps fund the Cannabis Business Development Fund that is supposed to help minority and women-owned businesses succeed in this industry. Mm -hmm. And there's another bill, uh, as I mentioned uh, briefly uh, before, on uh, medical improvements. And so we're, we're waiting to kind of see how those get taken up. They have some good ideas. They have some ideas that I think are a little... Not so great, but... Like what? Know, <laughs> what's not so great? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, I'll be a little controversial here. Um, I don't think it's a really great idea to combine these next two policy points. Make it super easy for anyone to get into the medical system and then allow anyone with a medical card to buy to recreational store tax-free. I think what happens when you combine those things together is you end up losing most of your tax revenue uh, because if you make it as easy as it used to be, say, in California in 2010 yeah. to get a medical card for any reason. Like you go to the doctor and say, I've got an itch. Oh, here's a medical card. Right. And then that allows you to go to any store and take 20% off your purchase. You know, thanks to the state, you're effectively going to lose your tax revenues. Uh, you're right. only going to be collecting tax from tourists. Now, some people might say, that's great. Let's soak the tourists. And, <laughs> you know, uh, that sure sounds great, but you need the tax revenues to support the regulatory apparatus that makes this system safe, that makes this system legitimate in the eyes of consumers and the general public and the non-consuming public. Um, so I'm a little scared of that one, yeah. um, to be honest. Yeah. I guess, you know, on the flip side, I, I totally agree with you. Like, we need that tax revenue. Um, I think one of the points that they are making for why it's a good idea is that the way the medical program is set up, patients don't really have a lot of choices. Yeah. You know, and so... You know, if they want to get products in the adult use market because there's more variety and there's more locations, you know, there's one closer to home, you know, that they should be able to buy there and not pay tax. Like, that's a good argument. But so is the argument that you're making. And so that's why we need to really, like, look at the medical market and yeah. figure out how we're going to make that work for the businesses in it and the patients that it's serving. So That's right. I, I think, you know, there are people who are well served by the recreational market. And I think ultimately the recreational market is going to see prices come down to the point where the tax is not going to be that big of a factor at all. You right. know, we've seen that in every state and yeah. eventually it'll happen here too. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, you do have some folks who have real medical needs, not fake medical needs mm -hmm. uh, or not, you know, medical needs that are convenient excuses for getting a medical card in a state that didn't have a recreational system, right? right. Which is right. the only way to get access. Right. These folks, cancer patients, right, people who have 
intractable diseases that, that, you know, the pain is so great that they just consume copious amounts of cannabis and specialized cannabis products that are very expensive. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say those people need to be paying another 20, 21% right. tax. Exactly. Um, and so we need to find a way to address that yeah. without blowing up the system. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. So... Let's talk a little bit about how it's going for you now that you're an operator. You know, I mean, you were advocating all these years for certain policies that, you know, that you felt would be good for the market overall. I'm sure they also had some benefit for, you know, what your future plans were. And that's great. Whatever. Fine. How do you feel like it's all working out now? You know, now that you see it from the other side, are there things that aren't happening at the legislature that you think we need to be advocating for in the future? Are uh, the things that are kind of like, oh, shoot, like <laughs> that's not working. And now, now I see the other side of it. Or are things kind of like going along as you thought? You know, I think things are generally actually going fine. Uh, so I'll say, first of all, I never planned to be an operator. I always thought that I would be able to have a small cannabis law practice that I could have out of my house and help people. Uh, but I never thought I would own a store. Uh, when my partner, Mike, came to me, presented this opportunity, and you know, we thought about it a lot, and it made sense for me to join him. And I'm really glad I did, because this has been a fantastic adventure. Being the first cannabis retailer to open yeah, the state yeah, was... Yeah, congrats on that. Thank you. It was, it was fun. It was a lot of work. Gave myself COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, just ran myself ragged <laughs> yeah. at the store without a mask. And, uh, but it was fun and super rewarding, and not, from, not from a financial point of view yet, because we have to pay our investors back before I get a penny. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's been rewarding in a professional sense. And it's really fun to, you know, I, I spend my Friday afternoons at the shop. Uh, and that's just a fun place to be in downtown Middlebury. It's, it's around the corner from my house. It really feels right. like part of the yeah. community. It's good lifestyle. Yeah, it's great. I'm enjoying it. I will say the system is working well. Uh, you know, yeah, there are some things that are annoying, like, you know, the vape tax making our vapes too expensive and the concentrates cap which was a political compromise that had to be yeah. made in yeah. order to get the bill passed. Yeah. But immediately we turned around and tried to retrade it. And that's the way politics is. You know, sometimes you have to take some lumps and uh, lose the battle to win the war. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of where we are. We're, we're trying to now fix things around the edges. I think we have a system that is working great. The idea that, you know, we'd be open to small businesses, I think that has borne true. We have... 200 licensed tier one small cultivators in this state. 200. That's a lot. Yes. That's like half the licensees. Yes. So that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I I think it's working. It's not working for everybody. Right. Right. And there are definitely headwinds in the future. Right. If we get to a point where overproduction uh, comes comes to fruition here, we could see a lot of folks lose a lot of money, yeah. especially growers who invest in uh, capital expenditures mm-hmm. up front, right? They may not be able to recoup. So people need to be careful and plan appropriately. And if you're going to lose money, you know, may- maybe get, you know, lose somebody else's money, not your own. Don't lose your house. <laughs> uh, professional investors can lose. That's fine. And, um, y- you know, I-, I think things are working great. There are risks ahead of us. I would tell folks who are looking to get in, into this industry that, yes, now is still a good time to get into this industry, but make sure you have a plan and make that plan be more conservative than you think it needs to be because the taxes are going to kill you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody now at the end, which is, what are you doing to take care of yourself right now? 
I'm an Ashtangi, so I practice uh, Ashtanga yoga at least three days a week, six on a good week. If my uh, if my teacher is listening, it's six every week. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. How long have you been practicing? Um, I've been practicing yoga since 2017. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I turned uh, 41 and realized that uh, my body can't take it anymore and I better do something about it. All right. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And thanks for being here today. We Thank really appreciate it. Yeah, and maybe we'll have you back on in the future with some quick updates on what actually has happened in the legislature this year. Yeah, so. we'll know by mid-May. We'll, we'll, it'll all be over. The dust will settle. Great. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Bridget. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing the show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5vt.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.